Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Juries want to do good things for good people, and we had some of the best people, and they were just like anybody that you would live next door to in Douglas County. You know, without talking about David and Goliath, that's what it really was about for me. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry, along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I am good. I'm good. It's been one of those days where just, you know, lots of fires getting put out and trying to keep your fingers in a, a number of different pies. So you know how it, uh, how I, those days go. I do. I think we've talked about this. I can't remember if we talked about it on while we were recording or not, but I don't know why every single year I forget that the last quarter of the year is always crazy. Yes. And I somehow always forget. And I'm surprised every year. <laughs> Everything gets done right before Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah. Um, well, I want to go ahead and introduce our, uh, our guests today. We've got uh, three uh, tremendous trial lawyers and, um, and, I, and uh, talking to them about it, just a, a really fascinating case. But I want to go ahead and introduce uh, Randy Edwards and Paul Pylan from the Cochran, Cochran and Edwards Law Firm uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. You can look them up at Cochran, C-O-C-H-R-A-N, EdwardsLaw.com. And uh, John Sherrod from the Sherrod and Bernard Law Firm in Douglasville, Georgia. And you can look up John at SheridanBernard.com. That's S-H-E-R-R-O-D-A-N-D-B-E-R-N-A-R-D.com. So uh, Randy, Paul, and, uh, and John, how are you all doing today? Doing good. Doing well. Great to be here. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to this. This was a a, a fascinating case, and uh, and as we've talked about on this, this case uh, or on this podcast uh, several times before, products liability cases against uh, auto manufacturers, or in this case, a motorcycle manufacturers, they're there's some of the easiest cases out there. I mean, they don't fight at all. They don't, you know, <laughs> file any kind of frivolous motions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, uh, of course, I'm joking and, and reading this uh, reading this transcript. And I, I, I should say in this particular case, not only have I dealt with uh, almost all of the same lawyers that you all have dealt with uh, in, the, in that case, but I also uh, uh, had the pleasure of dealing with uh, some of the experts that you had in your case. Uh, and so uh, so that'll be fun to talk about uh, and compare notes on on uh, on the experts that you all dealt with in, in the uh, in the case. And Steve, I was trying to remember, is this, I, I feel like we haven't talked about that many products cases, but is this, is this our first motorcycle products case that we've talked about? I think so. We definitely talked about a couple of motorcycle cases um, uh, before, but I think this is the first product liability motorcycle case, which is going to bring up some interesting points. And we'll talk about this as we get into it about um, jury bias and what some jurors might think about uh you know, motorcycles and especially a motorcycle like we have at issue here with it, some people would call a, a crotch rocket and, uh, and whether or not they're the people who ride them, ride them dangerously, but it's certainly going to, it certainly brings up some challenges for the lawyers handling the case. So we'll definitely, uh, definitely talk about that here. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I've never worked on a motorcycle case before, um, either a products case or otherwise. So I, I was learning a lot just from um, reading the transcripts and stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me first uh, go through and, and introduce everybody. 
uh, and tell, give a little bit about the background. And so, uh, Randy and Paul, I'll, I'll start with the two of you. So, as I said, Randy, um, Randy Edwards is a founding partner at Cochrane and Edwards, uh, and Paul uh, Paul Piland is a of counsel with Cochrane and Edwards, and. Um, so Randy, I'll, uh, I, I did a little research on you and I'm going to share my screen with you for a second here because I, I have a little, uh, little present for you that I found. Oh, oh, see, hey Raz, can you let me share my screen? Hopefully Raz is there. He's probably not. I had, the listeners I are going to be like, thanks a lot, screen. Steve. We're going to have to cut this out. I had this all set up. I, I guess Raz is not there. No, I'm, here. I'm right here. He's here. Oh, let, let me share my screen for one second. Okay. I'll make you the host, and that should work. Okay. There we go. All right, all right. All right, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I found this. Uh, I found this online. So, Randy. Uh, not only were you a, uh, a star athlete with the University of Alabama, we would try not to hold that against you here in Georgia, uh, but uh, and played for the great uh, uh, Paul Bear Bryant uh, back in uh, from 1980 to 1983, but also uh, uh, played for the Seattle Seahawks. And I found your football card on here and uh, and uh, uh, wanted to share that with you and show the uh, the card you had from uh from playing for the seahawks back uh back in the 80s and you you, you looked good man you looked you looked really good i've not changed a bit i don't think <laughs> that's right, that's yeah, right. Send, you a, send you a picture from the weight room days right <laughs> absolutely absolutely um well um yeah so as i said so bit played football for both uh university of alabama and um and uh, for the Seattle Seahawks. And I guess uh, Paul doesn't hold that against you because I can see that Paul was an Auburn grad. So uh, you guys get along okay at the office? We get along very well for 364 days a year. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Every day we just don't talk. And on Monday after the game, there's a begrudging congratulations one way or the other, and then we don't talk about it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, well, Randy, um, I should just let everybody know you've been practicing law uh, uh, for a while and had some just great, uh, tremendous results uh, focusing in uh, both business law, personal injury, uh, RICO, uh, as well as bad faith law. Uh, and you are um, uh, barred in both Alabama and Georgia and, uh, and an AV rated lawyer and, uh, and, um, have written and spoken um, all over the place about uh, trial tactics. Um, and so uh, it's a real pleasure to have uh, both you and Paul on the show. And, uh, and John Sherrod uh, has been practicing uh, law for 33 years in, in Douglasville or around the Douglasville area, uh, is a graduate from University of Georgia. So I mean, so we have a University of Georgia grad and a Alabama grad and an Auburn grad all here uh, on the same trial team together and somehow they got along okay. Um, but, uh, but, uh, John, not only did you, uh, graduate from the University of Georgia cum laude, but I noticed that you, uh, finished Mercer Law School number one in your class. So, uh, so I, I wouldn't say number one, but I, I think that may be a misprint, but, uh, okay. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere toward the top, hopefully well, we're I will we're say <laughs> this, I will say this, Steve, before we get off the football subject, what a lot of people don't know is before Randy went to Alabama and then played professional football, he was not, he was at Wheeler high school, 
where I was um, way down the depth chart as a kickoff return person. And so Randy was also our kicker. So at practice, I got to try to return his kicks, and he was always the first one down the field to lay you out. So I've known Randy for a long time. It goes back to ninth and tenth grade. Well, considering the fact that I read that, that Randy was a, a, a pass rush specialist, in, in, including getting over ten sacks, I saw in uh, back in nineteen eighty five. Uh, having that run down the football field on a kickoff uh, couldn't have been the best thing to see. <laughs> No, it was not. And he still had the tire tube around his leg as he ran down the field. <laughs> right. Old school kicker. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Well, oh, that's uh, great. Well, John, I also just wanted to, uh, to point out that you've had a, a tremendous amount of success in your career as well, had a number of really good trial results, including the case that we're here to talk about today. Also won a number of client choice or client champion awards. Um, so we're really uh, proud to have you guys on. So, uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, um, I'm going to give a quick rundown of the case, and you guys can let me know uh, if I've got the facts basically right. Um, but the name of the case was uh, Adrian and Gwen Johns uh, versus Suzuki Motor Corp and Suzuki Motor of America. It was tried in Douglas County back in February of 2018, and uh, it was a uh, the result was a $12.5 million verdict, $10.5 million for uh, Adrian for the injuries that he suffered in the crash that we're going to talk about, and a uh, $2 million loss of consortium claim for his wife, uh, Gwen. And it was tried under the theories of uh, not only strict liability and failure to warn, which are pretty standard, but I also thought the uh, the theory of a negligent recall uh, in this case was was interesting. But essentially, you have a 2006 Suzuki GSX-R1000, which uh, if anybody looks that up on the, on the internet, um, it looks like a very fast, powerful motorcycle. Um, and uh, um, Adrian, uh, who was both a, a, a postman uh, and had been in the special ops in the Air Force and was in the, uh, the U.S. Air Force Reserve, uh, was on his way to work, and um, as he was approaching uh, Lee Industrial Boulevard, as he was on Lee Industrial Boulevard, I guess coming up behind a tractor trailer, um, his front brakes, which are the main brakes used when uh, when when stopping a vehicle, stopping a motorcycle, um, failed on him, and uh, and because of that, he had to try and. Uh, go around the um, tractor trailer, uh, ends up losing control uh, and um, uh, crashing over a, over a, a bit of a distance. And um, I think if I remember right, that the, the, the speed he was going prior to the crash was somewhere in the thirties, if, if, if I'm remembering that right. Um, and he, uh, he suffered a head injury, suffered neck injury, spinal cord injury, and, a, and bad injuries to his left hand. Uh, and I think the, it sounded like the, the worst part of his injuries were to his spinal cord and, and uh, the instability he had in his spinal cord, which prevented him from returning to work as a postman uh, or uh, going back into the U.S. Uh, Air Force Reserves. And, and essentially, uh, and I'll let you guys explain this better if I screwed up, but essentially uh, the problem with the front brake on the Suzuki GSX-R1000 was that um, because they used a 
uh, zinc brake piston with a steel return spring and put that into uh, brake fluid, uh, it caused severe corrosion uh, in that in that front brake and then basically allowed debris or to get in there where the seal so that your brakes would essentially fail on you. Uh, and that's what happened in this case, or at least that's the theory that the plaintiffs are going with the defense, I will say, uh, challenged that vigorously. Um, and so, uh, but that was basically, um, basically the case against Suzuki. And there was quite a bit of evidence about Suzuki's knowledge of the problems they were having with their front brake system. And then what they were doing with that over the years coming up to August of uh, August 12, 2013, when the collision happened. Um, and basically where they had decided to recall it, but didn't recall it until several months after the collision. And so that led to the, uh, the negligent recall claim as well. So, uh, that's just a basic overview of the facts. Uh, how, how did I, how did I do with those, with those facts? Did very well, very impressed that, uh, that you got that, uh, from, I guess, the pretrial order in the, in the opening and closings we sent you, but that's, that's a very good summary of the case. Okay. Well, um, I mean, the first thing I, I wanted to talk to you about, and, and we'll we'll talk about the defense perspective of the case too, because, and this is not that surprising, but um, basically the defense was arguing in this case that, you know, one, it wasn't a problem with the brake. Anything that any debris that you were seeing in that front brake was caused by the crash. Um, and that this was all really driver air uh, inattention and that he basically locked up his rear uh, brakes and hit some gravel and lost control and, and that's what caused it nothing wrong with the Suzuki front brakes but the the first thing I really wanted to talk to you guys about is when you're approaching a case like this and it sounds like both uh, Randy and John that you had handled uh, several motorcycle cases when you're approaching a case like this and you've got a, a rider who rides what you know, from a lot of people, I think would would look at it and say it looks like something that somebody's going to be flying in and out of traffic on. How do you approach that as far as uh, talking to the jury, uh, you know, working out jury biases and, and, you know, overcoming those biases that people might have against uh, motorcycle riders? Yeah, I, I'll take that. Um, we got it out right in the beginning of the jury selection. Um, Everyone has been driving down the interstate 285 and suddenly one of those bikes goes by you doing at least 100, 120 miles an hour and it scares the crap out of you. And you just keep on watching to see what's going to happen with that bike if they happen to change lanes in front of somebody and, and get killed. I mean, it, you see it so much and people develop a prejudice toward motorcycles like that, the crotch rocket, like you said. So I just decided during jury selection to get that out there and get everybody talking about it and, you know, let everybody talk, tell their experiences with crotch rockets on the interstate. And, and then we tried to bring it back to, well, these facts will show that he was going well within the speed limit, that no, neither side says he was speeding, he was driving normal and, you know, kind of got that promise implicitly from the jurors that they would, stick to the facts and not about instances they had had with other crotch rockets out on the highway. And I thought it went pretty effective during jury selection. Um, you know, we did get a lot of people talking about it, but out in Douglas County, you got a lot of motorcycle riders too. And so those, those folks in the pool 
would bring their experiences about how you can ride them safely and you shouldn't be a, be scared of them. Then you got other people, Miss Jones, the second grade school teacher, is afraid of motorcycles and doesn't want to get near one. But they all agreed that they would hold to the facts of the case and not let some other incident just you know make the decision for them. And in fact, we ended up with a guy on the jury who had one of these motorcycles, and that scared John and I to death. But <laughs> You know, we were down to our last strike and there was somebody that we trusted less than him. So we ended up keeping this guy and he ended up being a good juror for us. But uh, we did feel that he would be able to stand up for crotch rocket riders <laughs> in general right. in the jury room. Right, because you never know how that's going to go. Are they going to be, you know, sort of defensive of the person who was injured by, you know, by this defective piece of equipment, or are they going to be critical of that, you know, that driver's skills and 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 sort of approaching it like that? They this would never have happened to them. Exactly, and that's what concerned us about him. But he ended up being good for us. Yeah, he was, and and he was just like our client. Um, in every way, he had a lot of positives, and that's why we kept him. But that, you know, I sat next to him for a month, and I <laughs> it was very, very painful to think about what he was thinking about. Right. Well, the one thing about that guy, you know, sitting next to him for a month, uh, when we got to the other similar incident witnesses, the guy, that guy just sat there for two weeks, didn't take a note about anything. And then when we put up our first other similar incident witness, uh, another uh, Marine Iraq war veteran uh, actually turned out to be uh, General Mad Dog Mattis's personal bodyguard. As soon as this guy started talking and he had the exact same situation as Adrian, he reached over and grabbed his pad and started taking notes. And we, we all just sighed a big, <laughs> big breath of relief. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, you know, and, and, and it's definitely something I wanted to talk to you about because OSI witnesses uh, at trial, um, you know, they, they, they're usually they're fairly short and to the point, but uh, but juries really listen to them. And um, and especially if they come across as being, uh, uh, you know, uh, credible and, and having no do no dog in the fight. But um, they, they can be very, very powerful witnesses. Um, and it sounded like, uh, John, to your point, when you were saying that you, you brought out these issues of um, uh, of uh, motorcycle riders, it sounded like your client uh, was a really great uh, client and, and, you know, a really just a good person. And like you said, you know, it had uh, been in the military for a while. And then one of your other uh, OSI witnesses uh, was in the Marines. Um, so, you know, when it, it, it kind of, you know, I read in your closing how when it, when it when they were bringing up that they panicked or that he had panicked or not handled the motorcycle correctly in this situation, that these are not the types of guys uh, who panic because they're, you know, they face situations, life-threatening situations before, and they're trained for it. Right. Yeah. Adrian was actually in special forces in the air force and was in a unit assigned to hunt down Osama bin Laden. So, he, he's not the guy that's going to freak out driving to work in the morning. And of course they want to show that he was, late it was late that morning actually he was early so anything they tried to point out we were able to controvert it and it, it worked well for us but no he you know one of the best things about our case is adrian and gwen johns they are your perfect clients 
And as you all know, juries want to do good things for good people. And we had some of the best people. And they were just like anybody that you would live next door to in Douglas County. They're at the band, they're in the band boosters, they're volunteering in the community to help troubled youth. Um, and so we knew we had that part of the case sewed up against, uh, you know, one of the biggest corporations in the world. And right. so we just tried to make that one of the themes of the case, you know, without talking about David and Goliath, that's what it really was about for me. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, digital law marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. Before we move on from, from the OSIs or, or for our listeners who don't do a lot of products for other similar incidents, um, they're so important in a products case and, and it's great when you have them for your own case, but then there's, there's number one, there's the fight about finding out about them, especially if you're trying to find out about them in discovery from the defendant. And then once you even know that they exist, then you've got the additional fight, the argument about whether they're similar enough for them to come into evidence. And I'm imagining it was probably a big fight because it seems like it always is in products cases. But I'm wondering if you guys can talk a little bit about um, that process, how you learned about them and, and how hard you had to fight to, um, uh, to, to get them into evidence and how you, you chose the ones that you did to have come into trial. Well, finding them obviously was difficult, but kind of stepping back, there were about a half a dozen of these cases going on around the country at the same time. And all of us lawyers found out about each other and we started cooperating and uh, sharing information. So we would kind of split up these OSI witnesses. You know, one guy flew out to Seattle to take this uh, Derek Gerard's deposition. There was a guy here in Georgia. We took his deposition. 
so we we all kind of uh, worked in it together and uh we had some other plaintiffs one of the guys actually testified in our case was a plaintiff in another case but that of course did not come in because that would have been too prejudicial but finding the osi witnesses then we had to talk to them and we the way we found them was suzuki kept fairly detailed records and whenever somebody would call in and say they lost pressure while riding they would say well that doesn't fit our recall condition it's not our fault good luck to you but they had a record of it anyway and a phone number so we would call those people or text them and you know one out of five or one out of ten would return the call and we would talk to them and interview them and, and if they sounded good we'd take their depositions but yeah there was a huge fight uh in court over this uh, as to whether they'd be admissible. We had six witnesses that we wanted to testify in our case, all of whom had a sudden loss of pressure while riding. Uh, we got to present two, which was great. We'd have rather had three or four or all six, but we got two and we think that those two witnesses were very, very credible. Because again, stepping back further, Steve, from your description of the case, yes, our theory was this corrosion goop or lumpy sludge as we called it we had to simplify it this lumpy sludge would interfere with the seal and cause a sudden break problem the recall was for corrosion but not for the lumpy sludge but was for the accumulation of gas over time which would gradually develop into a squishy break but not a sudden loss of pressure while riding so we had our failure, our sudden failure, which they said did not fit the recall condition, and then they had their recall condition, which by definition doesn't injure anybody. So yeah, we had the recall and we had the defect, but we had to fit our crash into the, what we called the recall. The real, the real culprit was the corrosion uh, product. And uh, that took some doing. We had to keep it simple. Right. And it took some doing to, to tell that jury, to tell that story cleanly and succinctly to the jury. Yeah, I was wondering about that because, you know, so I saw in, in the defense opening how they, they gave this description of what the recall from their standpoint was, that it was this buildup of hydrogen gas and it would get spongy. Um, but, but it sounded like there was some evidence that your client, uh, Adrian, had had a prior incident on his uh, motorcycle where he had had some sponginess and, and, and maybe he had even taken it in uh, to get it looked at uh, because of some sponginess in his, in his brakes. Is that right? He had had uh, at least two incidences of sponginess. One was several months before the crash when he had just gotten back from Iraq. The problem, if the bike sits for an extended period of time, it would get spongy. And then the second one was the Friday before the Monday crash. He felt sponginess. He called his father-in-law, who we thought was a great witness, a retired professional motorcycle racer and a certified mechanic. He called him and he walked him through the process of what they call bleeding the brakes to let the air out. So he did that and it worked. But then he still had the problem on Monday, had the sudden, sudden loss of pressure. But yeah, we fit the recall condition. There was no doubt about it, just not at that point at that point in time, although there was evidence of that eventually. And and then, so, you know, one of the big fights in the case, or at least what, one of the big things that the defense kept bringing up was that the route that he had taken to, or was taking to his office, 
I think he had, they, they kept pointing out that he had come across nine stop signs, uh, and had, uh, or stops and had to stop. And then he was in stop and go traffic. And, and then of course, after the collision, he, when, when he was being interviewed by the EMTs and the detectives, he, he apparently never said anything about the, you know, anything going wrong with his brakes. Um, but then when he's in the hospital, he does mention it. Um, talk just a little bit about, um, you know, how you uh, address those defenses, because, you know, I guess if the, if I guess from the defense's standpoint was, is, you know, if this is a sponginess issue, you know, how's he able to stop all these times leading up to it. And from your standpoint was, well, no, this is a, a sudden failure in the, in the breaks. And that's why you, I, I assume that's how you were explaining it, but just talk about how you dealt with those, those defenses that they raised. Well, that was obviously an important issue. We, we had to own it that, yeah, it stopped uh, perfectly for nine times, but you know, the thing about a brake, particularly a front brake on a motorcycle is a 95% passing rate is a failure. Your brake has to work every single time you apply it. And all it takes is one out of a thousand hits and you crash and you break your back or you die. Uh, so we had, our, our theory was this lumpy sludge, which they had found in dozens, if not hundreds of other bikes during their investigation, it would develop some, some solid particles over time and that a solid particle of the material is floating around in there and then at the wrong moment you know when you're when you're in an emergency situation it's not just a gradual application of the brake you squeeze it harder than you normally do and the seal goes down into unused territory and when it did that a little piece of the of the uh material gets stuck between the seal and the cylinder wall and our my analogy was it's like getting a you know a piece of pine straw stuck under your windshield wiper. Uh, right. All of a sudden, you've got something that's compromising the seal, and at the incredible pressures that these seals are under, it takes a very tiny opening to uh, to make the the seal completely worthless. And uh, we had we had a we had a picture when the when we removed the cylinder the. We had a picture of a piece of solid debris on the seal in exactly the wrong spot on Adrian's bike. So our, one of our experts, he, he measured that and he put an exemplar piece on there and took a photograph and it did deflect the seal ever so slightly. And it was our theory that that deflection would explain the sudden spontaneous loss of pressure. And uh, apparently the jury agreed with us, but it, uh, we tried to keep it simple. And to us, the best evidence was it's happened to all these other people because they had all these other records in their system about sudden losses of pressure that they just ignored and discounted. Right. And, and, and that's one thing that I, uh, I talked about briefly, and I'd like you all to talk about it a little bit more is this timeline of knowledge that Suzuki had, um, I, th- I think you had it going back to 2007, and then, and then when it gets up closer to 2012, uh, they seem to be realizing they've got a real problem and need to do something about it. Can you just talk a little bit about the timeline uh, of Suzuki's knowledge and problems with their uh, their brakes? Yeah, they redesigned their brakes in 2003. And shortly after that, they started getting these reports of gradual pressure loss and sudden pressure loss. And they would start investigating. And actually, Suzuki had a 90-day timeline 
uh, from the time they hear of a problem to a resolution of the problem, their goal is 90 days. Well, it took them closer to nine years. So that was a problem for them. But they start gradually investigating this. They don't believe anything. Eventually, come 2011, there's more and more of them. So they're starting to investigate it more vigorously. Uh, they go and look at bikes on the showroom floor. They find problems on bikes that have never been ridden. They've just been sitting on the showroom floor for a year. So then finally they decide, all right, we're gonna change it in next year's production models. And that comes at the end of 2012. They say, all right, here's our new design going forward, but it's going to apply starting in the summer of 13. And then a few months later, they say, you know, we've got, this is a bigger problem than we thought we have to conduct what we call a field action. They're very careful not to use the word recall. And in fact, one of the documents that we found, what we call the Kudo memo, he made this pros and cons table of doing an R and not doing an R, which was code for recall. Right. Uh, but eventually in the spring, they decided, yes, we need to conduct a field action, but we don't want to do it in the spring and summer because that's our profitable selling season. We don't want the world to know about a problem during our high sales season. So they meet, uh, they meet their dealer or meet their, uh, their parts manufacturer. They order 200,000 parts in April, tell them to keep it quiet. We want these by July. And then of course, Adrian crashes in August and then they announced the recall in uh, October, I believe. So it's just, it's just, you know, corporate greed profits over lives. That's what came right. out of one of our focus groups is profits over lives. They knew the problem. They didn't want to address it. They wanted to kick the can down the road as long as they could. Uh, and that's what they did. And unfortunately, Adrian and several other people were seriously injured in the, in the gap between when they decided to conduct the recall and actually announce the recall. Now, one of the things that was so shocking to me about that was if you, if, you know, if you do enough products work, then of course you see, you're going to see where there's, they're getting a problem, they're getting reports of a problem and they're slow to act on it. And, um, but what surprised me about this one or just made it seem so much worse was the fact that they, they knew it was a problem to the extent that they had, that they had ordered replacement parts and just hadn't told the people who were riding these things around. I mean, that to me was another level of, it's not just you're investigating it. It's not just that you're dragging your feet. It's that you've, you've taken action. Um, but the action that you took was not to tell the people who were in the most danger. Right. And, and in that same memo that you're talking about, which we, we have sandwich board here, it's one of the biggest uh, props I've ever used in a trial. <laughs> sandwich board. Uh, but in that same memo, they acknowledge that when somebody has a problem like Adrian, they bleed the brakes and they think they fixed it and they have no idea they've got a problem with the structure. So they knew that they admitted it in writing and they're going through this pros and cons analysis of should we do a recall or not? And the conclusion is, yes, we must actively pursue a recall, but let's keep it quiet for six months. And to add to the timeline, in October of 12, they decide that they're going to change the structure on the next year's model. November of 12, they run the American subsidiary through bankruptcy. Yeah. And then they do this investigation. So by April, they have a meeting where 
they're doing this pros and cons list of if we do a recall, if we don't, then the next four months they spend drafting the recall narrowly to avoid any liability. Right. And that's, that's another point that we, that we played up. We didn't want to play it up too much, but they, uh, they did run their American subsidiary through bankruptcy. Didn't disclose any of this to the bankruptcy court. And then it was just weeks after they emerged from bankruptcy. Of course, they, they had a shell company set up the minute they filed bankruptcy to buy all the assets. So then when they emerge from bankruptcy and get the dis discharge and all of that, that's when everything really starts. And they argued in our case that the claims against the new American subsidiary were barred because they were discharged by bankruptcy. But we explained to Judge Detmering that it was the new subsidiary, Suzuki Motor of America, Inc., that actually communicated with uh, the federal government on the terms of the recall and actually sent the information to the, the uh, owners of the bikes. So that was our argument that, that they were a new entity and all of, the, all of this failure to warn and the negligent recall conduct occurred after they emerged from bankruptcy. So yeah, that was definitely on their agenda secretly was to uh, conduct a whitewash, run the American company through bankruptcy, and then we can avoid all of this. And uh, they tried that in every case that was filed, and uh, one or two of them, it was successful, but uh, most of them not. Yeah, I, th I thought one of the things I thought was interesting or uh, powerful in your, um, in your timeline was the fact that one of the guys who was writing the memo, and I'm sure it's the one behind you, uh, was talking about how Toyota had delayed in telling the government about you know a problem they had, and then got fined thirty two million dollars. Right. And then if if they were going to delay, then they were going to you know face you know problems with uh, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, with courts, and you know whatever else. So they so they recognized that they needed to. Um, to to tell people quickly about this and and then uh, Randy you did a great job in both your opening and closing of sort of setting out the rule of saying you know when you know of a danger you got to let people know about it you know promptly um you know and and they recognize this too and they put it in their memos right so with this memo which is so crazy um <laughs> i'm i want to know how you First of all, how you had to fight to get it, or was it something that, especially with the, you know having these other um, attorneys that that you knew that had similar cases, if it was sort of a team effort for y'all, and also if it was produced in Japanese? Well, let me start, and then I'm gonna turn it over to Paul. We served our initial discovery. They gave us maybe a hundred thousand documents. Only a Only a hundred of which were emails. We got a. We asked for all communications about this investigation. They gave us a hundred emails. We then find out from one of our friends in another case that in their case, Suzuki had produced their case, which was filed after ours. Ours was the first filed case. In that other case, Suzuki had produced three hundred thousand documents including 178,000 emails in Japanese. <laughs> so I just sent them a, a, an email one night, said, uh, can you please explain to me why you produced, you know, 178,000 emails in this other case and only 100 in ours? 
So we filed a motion for sanctions, eventually got everything. Yes, it was in Japanese. And that's where Paul did the heavy lifting. <laughs> and I actually went back and I found my original copy of this that I printed out in Japanese and wrote a handwritten note on it. So it smells like a cover up. <laughs> um, and, you know, going through hundreds of thousands of pages in Japanese. I don't speak Japanese. I don't read Japanese. But, well, you do now, though, right? <laughs> I know how to recognize consistencies and inconsistencies in documents. So this this particular email, it's in Japanese, but then there's this copy and pasted article that's in English. I'm like, well, that's interesting. I haven't seen that before. And then, you know, I'm like, also, this, this has a table in it. I haven't seen a table like this in other documents. So I, you know, go through this process of having to recognize the text, switching my language to Japanese, uh, running it through two translation programs, one that was free and one that I paid for because you get when you do machine translations, you get different results. For example, one machine translation tool translated Suzuki into sea bass every time. <laughs> Don't know how that happened, but I had a bunch of sea bass documents. Um, and yeah, that's... So you did this... So I was wondering about that, especially when you get a volume like this, I was wondering if you all used, you know, some of the sort of tools, the software that's out there, but you were basically OCRing this to get the text recognition and then, and then running it through translation tools yourself to figure out what was in these documents. Yes. Which backs up to the fact that the initial production where we got this was single page TIFF files with no text. <laughs> oh, so it's a nightmare. I, I would start with I would take about 200 files, combine them into one PDF, and then you know if I saw oh that looks interesting, I'll extract that page and then OCR it and copy it into something. And okay, that sounds interesting and it looks good. Then you know we'll send it off to the certified translator to get a certified translation. But that again, that was an extremely expensive process to get a certified translation. So then. We have all these great documents that we've spent all this money, uh, all this time, all of Paul's time and all this money getting translated. We've taken very few depositions. We took this Kudo fellow's deposition and a couple of other depositions. And Suzuki was very arrogant before trial and said, hey, you got all these great documents, but they're all inadmissible hearsay. None of them are coming into the case. I believe the quote was, those documents you're so proud of aren't coming in. Right. And, and, and we, were, we were satisfied that through Kudo's deposition and a couple other depositions, we'd laid the foundation to get them into evidence. But we didn't want to play eight hours of video depositions with 90% of it in Japanese for the jury. So before trial, this is another kind of segue. We went to court-ordered mediation, which was a complete fiasco. Uh, Suzuki sent their American in-house lawyer as their corporate rep. And we said he didn't know anything. We filed a motion for sanctions. They filed a response saying that this Robert Hernandez has the most knowledge of the smallest, most uh, smallest details in the case. He knows everything about the case. He's been instrumental in the document production and everything. So we said, okay, fine. So they've told us that not these documents are not coming in. They won't cooperate, won't stipulate, won't do anything. So right after opening, as our first witness, we call Robert Hernandez for cross-examination, mm -hmm. their in-house counsel. They flip out. 
And we said, well, Judge, right here on the pretrial order, we have representative of Suzuki for cross-examination. Yeah. He's their corporate representative. They put him on the record for that. So we called this guy for cross-examination and uh, just build up how much he knows about the case and then just start hitting him with these documents. Boom, 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 boom. And we got them all in as an admission against interest by a party opponent. We didn't right. bother trying to lay the foundation for, for a business record. These are all admissions against interest. And, wow. And so we got, we got the bulk of our documents in. Then we go to lunch. We come back from lunch. Hernandez must have slipped and hit his head like Adrian did. <laughs> he does not remember anything about anything after lunch. He right. had total, total amnesia. But we got, we got the majority of our documents in through him before lunch. And uh, that, that was great. So these are documents that they produced that then they were saying were 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 not uh, were did not qualify as business records and they had stipulated to the authenticity of everything in the pretrial order but I mean you've dealt with products cases mm -hmm. everything you do is a fight they won't they won't roll over on anything yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think that that uh, gives us a nice segue into the next part I wanted to talk about, which was this sort of theme that, um, you know, that you, what you had going through the trial. Um, uh, John, I'll say, you know, your your second close, you really brought it home with with which was the credibility, um, you know, that they you pointed out that they were basically calling um calling your client Adrian a liar. Uh, and, and I thought it was interesting because you pointed out that he, you know, he wasn't just like a, your average motorcycle rider. He was like a Suzuki fan. Like oh, yeah. He had the, had the jacket, had the gloves. You know, he loved Suzuki. Oh, he, uh, yeah. It, well, you know, one of the things, we had a table uh, of just Adrian, who lives over on Hampton Pass here in Douglasville, just down the street from the courthouse. And then you have them here, you have a global defendant. Over here, you have AJ, who's been here every day with us. Over there, you got a, a lawyer that they send in and out to monitor the case. And we just kept going through. You know, Adrian loves Suzuki. He wears the Suzuki shirts, the helmets, and all that. Suzuki calls Adrian a liar. Um, and, you know, it, it was that theme to kind of enhance the damages. It's bad enough to send him home without a nickel, but they want to label him a liar. Right. And it was one of those things that, you know, I, I kind of led up to, you know, his kids are going to want to know about this case someday. And they're going to see that their dad was labeled a liar by Suzuki, the company that he loved. And it was kind of like that moment you have where you, you feel like I sound like a Baptist preacher, but there's good news. There's good news. That's you can give AJ his good name back. And uh, you do that by giving full compensation in the case. And um, at that point, we knew that the jury liked the Johns family. Um, you could just tell being, being there that whole time that we just really had to show how mean and ugly this has been for them. And, you know, they're not only calling this person who, who wants money, we get it, a liar, but he's also that person that's mentoring, mentoring your children, who's you know, going to the band booster stuff, who's helping out our community. Um, 
he then brings in people from across the country to say this happens to them. Well, they're liars too. We don't believe them. So that's how we take a case with these type of injuries and make it a little bit more valuable, I think, is, is right. showing how good these people are and how they were treated by a company like Suzuki. Right. And I, and I, I thought it also played in nicely because when you start talking about the corporate representatives and what they said on the stand and how they were being evasive in their responses, wouldn't remember anything, and then tied that in with the uh, expert work, the defense experts, and how, uh, you know, they had basically uh, tried to pull a fast one on the jury as far as, you know, talking about, uh, you know, how this was AJ's fault or, or what they were trying to present to him. But um, talk a little bit about this, um, about uh, this issue of whether or not their expert uh, thought he saw brake fluid or not. One of the highlights of the case. I'll let Randy tell you that one. Right. So, uh that was uh, Todd Hoover, and I assume, right. he, I assume you guys have dealt with him. Yeah, him and Mr. Tandy. They, they um, you know, they, they used to be together. I can't, I don't know if they're still together, but I've, I've definitely dealt with them before. They're not, but uh, for those who've never dealt with him, Todd Hoover is, is one of the top professional defense experts in the country. Uh, whenever there's a, a, a big company with a lot of products cases like Ford, GM, Takata, Suzuki, uh, tire, Cooper Tire, they hire Todd Hoover. And Todd Hoover will do and say whatever he needs them to say uh, to, to prove the case. Uh, one of the things that I found just absolutely amazing was Todd Hoover has been retained in between 4,000 and 5,000 cases like this. Not Suzuki cases, but products cases. And not once in his life has he had to call his client and say, hey, we've got bad news. The product actually failed and hurt this person. <laughs> Never in his life has he seen a defective product fail and hurt someone, which says a lot about him. Mm -hmm. But uh, he blamed everything on, you know, when we tested the bike after the crash, the brakes didn't work at all. Uh, there was no question about that. You could squeeze the brake to the lever and we had it jacked up the front wheel off the ground and you could spin the front wheel by hand easily with the brake fully engaged. And Todd Hoover's explanation for that was there's crash related damage. And we, we took his, in his deposition, he identified a bunch of documents. We looked at those and said, well, that's bird crap. So we didn't think anything more about it. So then Todd Hoover goes in there, and if you've, if you've seen him testify in court, he is a very impressive witness. I mean, he's got his $1,000 suit. He's very sharp, and as I described him in the closing argument, he's like a guy who stands, who you see on a late-night infomercial standing between his Maserati and his airplane telling you how to make millions of dollars selling real estate for no money down. So he, he is a sharp, smooth operator guy. And... He explained to the jury that the reason these brakes did not work was because of crash-related damage. And he had these pictures. He would zoom in on, uh, on the frame of the bike directly underneath the front brake master cylinder. And there was a little pile of something. And he said, that is dried brake fluid. And uh, he said, you know, the, the fluid comes down, it corrodes the paint, it all kind of gets chippy and, and, and congeals. That's dry brake fluid. I, I asked him, did you test it? No. 
I didn't test it. I didn't need to test it. I've lived around brake fluid my whole life. I know what it does. That's dried brake fluid. So we had never tested it. So during the trial, I sent a text to Jeff Hyatt, our expert from ATS here in Marietta. I said, hey, can you get somebody to go swab that stuff and test it? Because Jeff was out in Seattle at the time. He was working on another case. So he, he got somebody at ATS to test it. So Hoover, and I remember this distinctly, after, after he finished testifying, some of the jurors looked at me with their hearts broken because he's such a credible, believable guy. They thought that he had just destroyed our case. So I get the results back, and yeah, it turns out to be uh, bird crap. So we called one witness for rebuttal, and Suzuki goes crazy. This guy's not disclosed on the witness list. Well, judge, you know, it's rebuttal. We don't have to. So they go crazy, and we call the guy, and they voir him for an hour one afternoon, and the jury's out of the room. We call him back the next morning, and this is Dave Paul. If you ever have a case and need a break, uh, a bird crap expert, Dave Paul. <laughs> yeah, he's a bird crap expert. All right. <laughs> so we call him up, and we just start you know, slow playing it in front of the jury, trying to build the tension. Dave, who are you? What did you do? What was your assignment in this case? He goes, well, on Thursday of last week, I got a call and was told to uh, see if we could perform some test on this material. Did you test it? Yeah. Before we got to that, and, and I can see out of the corner of my eye, the jurors are just leaning forward on their seats just with utmost anticipation. So what did you find out? And he said, well, uh, it was bird uh, droppings. Judge Detmering would not let us say bird crap or bird <laughs> shit or anything like that. I think he said bird poo, maybe. Right. <laughs> uh, well, how do you know it was? What? Where did you get your exemplar? He goes, well, on my on the back porch of my house, I've got a bird feeder, and underneath my bird feeder, there's a lot of white droppings. So I took some of that and we, uh, I took a swab of that and we took it to ATS and we ran that as a, as an exemplar and then compared it and the electron results are identical. And so therefore there's no question that that material is in fact bird poo. So what did, did you also find brake fluid? Well, we tested for brake fluid there. And in fact, there was no brake fluid there. So uh, I was reading my closing again today to prepare for this, and, and, and I forgot about this. You know, Todd Hoover's got to have all these enormous string of coincidences. And in his world, right. the biggest coincidence is the one and only spot he can point to on that bike as proof of crash-related damage just happens to be the one and only place on that bike where a bird flew over and pooped <laughs> on the frame. So uh, when, when we finally got it out, from the in front of the jury, they were they were relieved. We could hear some of them going, "Yes!" And, I mean, they were so excited that we had destroyed Todd Hoover. <laughs> oh, that's, that is awesome. I, I just had to show you this. I had it sitting here, but so this is a. I don't know if you can see that on the camera, but it's a Ford Explorer, and you can see it's got marks all over it, and these are crash marks. Todd Hoover made this for me. Uh, when I was deposing him one time, he brought it to the deposition. I said, well, will you make me one of those too? And he did. He said, I think it cost me like 600 bucks. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, uh, it turned out that uh, Todd had created a 30-foot a long replica of the road in this case that they were going to use for some purpose to show the jury 
how how everything happened. But one mistake they made is they didn't measure the courtroom. <laughs> and their 30-foot-long replica that they spent God knows how much money on, they couldn't get it through the doors. Yeah. So I thought that was funny. They, awesome. paid they paid Todd over a million dollars in that case. He's their go-to guy around the country. Uh, so Okay, so that, that was a question for me. So you mentioned the 900000 to a million dollars. That was just in your case? No, that was, okay. uh, that was in all the cases at the time. And uh, ours okay. was the first case tried. He has since testified in three other trials. Uh, and actually, Paul and I helped try one of the cases in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, completely different situation, different judge, federal court. Uh, none of this stuff came in in that other case in federal court. Right. Uh, Man, you got to think with the, with the, the, the bird shit that like, you know, jurors are always, you feel like you have to manage their expectations because they're waiting for these really, you know, exciting moments or you can't handle the truth and you really have to like, you know, get them used to the idea that that's not how a, a real trial works. But then you go and do something like that that's so exciting. They must have really felt like they got their money's worth. Well, they were all laughing and the judge was laughing. So everyone was laughing except Suzuki's national counsel. Right, right. They were not happy. It was great. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. The settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Com, legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. Well, um, I want to turn to damages, but I, I do. One thing I forgot to point out, and, and I, I was wondering how this worked out, because I think it's a it's a little bit of a question in the law. When the jury returned their verdict, they found um, Adrian 49 percent at fault. Um, and I think they found Suzuki uh, 45% and then Suzuki Motor of America 6%. So um, one thing I was wondering, did you find out from the jury or what, what it was that why they put 
uh, so much fault on on Adrian. And then how did that actually work out? Because I saw at least part of the argument where there was a question under strict liability, whether or not it gets apportioned at all. And I know that's been sort of a question of law. So I'm wondering how that got worked out at the end of the day. Well, speaking of jurors, we've got different stories from different jurors, but basically I think it was the maintenance. Adrian didn't change the brake fluid on his bike in the six or eight years that he owned it. Norris, his father-in-law, explained why he didn't need to do that, but, you know, it is what it is. Right. Uh, as far as the apportionment, uh, you know, we took that all the way to the Supreme Court and got a, got a decision a couple of weeks ago from the Georgia Supreme Court where they uh, held that the apportionment statute basically changed to the prior law on strict products liability and that the apportionment is now a valid uh, issue in strict products cases. And what was it? Uh, so was the verdict apportioned across the board, meaning including the loss of consortium claim as well? Yeah, so the 12 and a half million got reduced down to 6375 or something like that. Uh, and, you know, once it was affirmed by the Court of Appeals and uh, you know, we both filed cert petitions when our cert was granted and their cert was denied, they paid us the, the judgment plus interest. Right, right. So did you get a feeling from the, the jury? Was there, I mean, sometimes you wonder uh, when they when they make a finding like that, that maybe there was one or two that, that might have been um, hung up on either the damages or the liability, but decided you know, they were going to try and cut it right down the middle, knowing that 49% was going to make sure your client got something. Yeah, I, we talked to the foreman who was a numbers guy, and he let us know that there was one drawer that was kind of against us. Most of them were in our favor. Uh, but what he decided to do was up the numbers to get us what he thought was fair. And so that's what they did. But But to satisfy the one drawer, the two drawers that were against us, they put blame on AJ. Okay. Okay. I, did you get a sense from them? Steve mentioned this earlier, but one of the things that they seem to be making a big deal about of their many defenses that, that I just don't get, but maybe it's just cause I'm too plaintiffs oriented at this point was that, that Adrian didn't talk about how his brakes weren't working basically at the scene when he's been seriously injured, that he didn't say that until later when he's in the hospital. And to me, that's just not very persuasive because you've sort of got more important um, things going on. Like, am I alive? I just hit and cracked my helmet. Um, but did you get a sense if the jury liked that at all? I got a sense that, that they were more persuaded by the first guy on the scene who found Adrian, who testified that he looked dead. And I don't know that they gave much credibility from that point on, on what he said or didn't say uh, around the scene. The police officer who did the investigation, unfortunately, didn't do a good job. If you look at the police report, it's got the, the crash occurring in the wrong intersection. So that was part of the problem. We're dealing with a client who doesn't know anything about what happened. Uh, and then we have a bad police report. So that was part of some of the confusion. But again, AJ makes a very credible witness. And one of the things that, you know, I tried to do, you know, these guys are the engineers. I'll be the first to tell you my part of this was, was trying to put some feeling in the case. And one of the things I, I, I said, look, when you're, when you're on a motorcycle, 
it doesn't matter if your brakes failed, your brakes didn't work all the way, your brakes just didn't seem right. When you're coming up on a tractor trailer, they need to be working perfectly. So we, we really, you know, what really happened, we don't know. But what we know for sure is his brakes just weren't right. And that's supported by all the evidence across the country. And I, I think that uh, most of the jury were persuaded by that, and they helped us by upping the numbers. Yeah, so we, we haven't really talked about the, the damages side of this. Will you, will you talk a little bit about just how you presented um, the damages? I know you, you brought in a number of his uh, medical providers to kind of talk about uh, the effect this had had on him, uh, and yeah. then obviously had some family members talk about it as well. You know, when you talk to lawyers, you know, about this case, they're all impressed by one thing. And that is, how did you get so much money for the guy? Because we've seen him. He looks like he's in pretty good shape. I mean, he's not in a wheelchair. He's not on a cane. Um, but he does have a permanent spinal cord injury. And both of his physicians testified that he's plateaued. He's as good as he's going to get. And he is not the guy that was running a six-minute mile before this crash and, and leading his Air Force unit uh, in physical you know, fitness. Right. Uh, the, the, the commandeer for the Air Force uh, wrote, a, uh, we got to read this to the jury about uh, what a spectacular Air Force serviceman he was. Um, we have a fit guy that is now a totally different person. And so one of the things that, you know, I'm a David Ball guy, what we wanted to do was put harms in the case throughout. So we didn't wait until the end and try to pile all these harm witnesses at the end. We started putting them in, whether we had both of the supervisors from the Air Force and the post office testify about what a great guy he is. And with whatever before and after witnesses we used, we not only talked about what a guy he was before, but how he is now and give us some examples. So when his mom testified that she found him crying in his car one night, cause he's not the, the son he wanted to be for her. You could tell that impacted a lot of jurors. Mm -hmm. So we had the, we had the experts. We had a lot of great witnesses, um, that came in that talked about AJ and just what they were able to communicate, he's, he's changed. He's, he's very quiet now. He's not the life of the party. And we would put those boards up about just one or two words to let, to remind the jury, this is what was said about how he was the life of the party. Now he goes back to the family farm by himself for long periods of time. Um, so that's, that's how we did it. We, we, we had a lot of witnesses to come forward and, you know, with a, with a long trial like that, you can do that. You can just keep putting them in. Hey, we got some time at the end of the day. Let's let's bring uh, this lady from the high school band who was going to tell us about how she could rely on AJ for carrying all the heavy equipment. Now they, you know, he's embarrassed because he can't do that, and that's right. that shame is a big thing, as you know. If you can show that jurors see that that he's he's still shameful about this, that he can't be the man that he used to be, and um, his wife made a great witness about how their marriage has changed. And that's why I think she got a, a good result on the consortium claim or they did. Yeah. I, I thought the uh, one thing I noticed is how you weaved in the theme of humiliation that, uh, you know, not only was he going through this tremendous amount of pain and, and the, the instability to his spine, but just the humiliation, both with the, you know, his family, his kids with, with everything. I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. He was, he coached his kids in sports, and now, you know, he doesn't, 
he's just not the same guy that he was because of those injuries. But it's also a mental thing, I think. You know, he just doesn't doesn't feel uh, like the dad he wants to be. Now, we did, and, and I, I know you guys do this too, we put a lot of evidence about how he's trying to overcome all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got a little gym downstairs. He may not can bench 200 pounds like he used to, but he does his rehab down there. And so we tried to show that he is trying – to overcome what he's been dealt. But um, the, the witnesses that came in, especially uh, friends through the Air Force and uh, the post office, they were very powerful. And uh, you could see some tears, uh, especially when his mom testified with the jury. Yeah. I think we had, what, maybe 20 total friends and family witnesses. I mean, you know, a three-week trial, as John said, we'd have a little downtime. We'd call in Billy Bob from down the road, and uh, it was very, very powerful. And it was so powerful that at some point we called called uh, some other friend and family witness, and Suzuki objected and said it was cumulative, and uh, John was just mortified that they would have the audacity to make that type of objection in front of a jury in a case like this. Right. <laughs> Well, I noticed, uh, Randy, you and Paul have, have pulled up a board behind you that says uh, harms on it. Was, was this uh, what was used in the closing? Yeah, we had seen this and somebody else had done this. And basically what this chart is, I know that people can't see it, but we, we went through each element of damages that a judge will read in the jury instruction. Because typically, and I've done this in the past, you think of, all right, you've got your special damages and general damages, and that's pain and suffering and one or two others. But we have a list here of all of the things that the judge will order them to uh, tell them to consider. Uh, The shock of impact, pain and suffering, past and future, the need to limit activities. So we had all of these on this poster board, and John was doing this part. And before I turn it over to him, I'll just kind of... Uh, give a little background. In the opening, we threw a number out there of 14 million we were going to ask for. Uh, and part of that, what we were planning to do was 10 million plus 40% attorney's fees. But then we had settled with uh, another defendant, and we didn't want the fact that we had settled with them to come in and let the jury hear about our attorney's fees. So we had to come up with a different way to get to 14 million. So the night before closing, we're sitting here filling out this chart, trying to get to a $14 million number. Okay. <laughs> and in cases like this. And in case, so that's how John, so we, John can, uh, John did this part of the closing and did a great job. Although Stephanie actually filled in the numbers because his handwriting is as bad as mine. That's right. <laughs> now I, I had never argued a case uh, this way as far as damages. So I would just take out an enjoyment of life tell you this is what the judge is going to tell you it is it's kind of like and i would list a witness that said something how it impacted aj's enjoyment of life and i'd say in cases like this enjoyment of life is exactly the same as you know your lost wages so put that down so i always had a number and just was matter of fact about it and again it goes back to i felt like the jury was on our side and they didn't like Suzuki. So I was pretty liberal with my numbers. But that's a great idea because I think often you just sort of, you just group, you know, your specials and your, and your general and you don't. And, and even then I think sometimes you get, you have people who are just sort of 
just grouping it grouping it all together. You know, maybe they're thinking about medical bills separately, and then everything else is just kind of combined together as some as some money to get to them and their family. But when you list it out like that, it I mean I that's really effective to show you know all the things that you might be inclined to think about as one thing, one harm when they're actually different. And yeah. the, first, the first three or four lines, we actually had objective numbers that we could put in, like the, the lost wages past and future. We had an economist give us a present value of that. And then the, the loss of household services, he gave us that number. So we would kind of use those as the anchor. And then we'd say, uh, you know, for example, in cases like this, interference with the enjoyment of life, that's the loss of household services. So we just... We're just putting stuff in there to give the jury an anchor to tie the numbers down to. Um, yeah. No, I think it's a great way to uh, to walk the jury through uh, the damages portion. And I think jurors appreciate it because they're looking for guidance on what they're supposed to do during that section. Because it's it it's not an easy uh, it's not an easy thing to figure out is 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 how much. Uh, value to put on, you know, uh, something that somebody has suffered. Um, yeah. juries, so. juries are always looking for us to explain to them how to come up with a number. Yeah. The the last thing I wanted to ask you about is the, the, the jury decided not to uh, fine for punitive damages. And I just wanted to ask you all about that. Would, did you get any insight into that? Because it sounded like you know, with the OSI evidence and sort of this timeline, I thought y'all had some pretty good evidence for punitives. Did you get any insight on that? Yeah, it was the same uh, same uh, juror who was against us to begin with. She was not going to budge on the punitives. And uh, during deliberations, the jury asked to be recharged on punitives. And so they came back in and were recharged on punitives. And at the end of that, you could see all 11 of them turn to her and say, see? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, we were we were disappointed in that. And yeah. I thought, uh, you know, as I said, I went back and I read my portion of the closing again today. And that's one area where I obviously could have done better is trying to trying to arm the jurors better on that portion of the case for the for the punitives. But, uh, you know, I'll. But again, in hindsight and talking to them, uh, that they compromise by inflating the, the compensatory part of it. Right. And then you're not having to deal with the, the, you know, all the constitutional challenges to a punitives award. Now, I mean, y'all ended up having to go all the way to the Supreme Court anyway, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, it does, uh, it, it does help. I mean, I, you know, um, I mean, punitives, while it's, it's good to get them sometimes can present, uh, problems, uh, with uh, with collection that you uh, maybe didn't foresee. Well, but, uh, and uh, you know, under Japanese law, they don't allow punitive, so that would have been a been a problem. Right, right, exactly. So we well, have, um, here, I was ready to foreclose on them because there's there's one out near my house in Kennesaw. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, um, I, I mean, this has just been a great discussion. I, is there anything that we haven't talked about the uh, the Johns versus Suzuki Motor Corp case uh, that you want to make sure that our listeners have heard about? I, I will say this, and, and you know, uh, this was the longest trial I have ever been involved in. I've, I've tried a lot of cases, most of them smaller than than the big ones. But um, one of the things that I take away is the teamwork. Um, 
every night Mm -hmm. for three and a half weeks. We came back to my office and as a team talked about the day and what we were going to do the next day. And we not only had the three here with you today, but we had um, Stephanie Thompson, who is one of my law partners, helping us. And then we had some lawyers that were on the other cases across the nation. They had sent some lawyers to work with us. So we had lawyers from Florida and Mississippi and California throughout the month-long trial in there at these sessions every night talking about this is what you ought to do. This is what you you should do here. Very helpful. So anybody that's listening, when you get one of these, you need a team. And uh, every night kind of decide what's going to be done and and kind of brainstorm. And that was the most help to me uh, working like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And speaking of the of the lawyers from other cases, one there was one young one young kid uh, who was working on a case in Florida and he came up for Voidire. And he gave us more insight into the jury than the rest of us combined because he's sitting in the, in the back and he's just searching everybody on Facebook and Twitter and everything like that. So he gave us more jury Intel than we had collectively as a group. And uh, one thing I have learned from that is I've taken my, she's now 20, but taking my daughter with me to, to jury trials right. to help us pick jurors because these kids on social media can get so much more information than we can get in voir dire. And it's very, very helpful on that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, there, and there's, there's a new app. It feels like every day that, uh, you know, we haven't even heard of, but you're, you're right. My, my teenage daughters will tell me, Oh yeah, you know, everybody's using that. How, how do you not know right. about it? And, and one other thing about teamwork, I want to, I want to give this shout out. Uh, we had lunch with Lance Cooper one day and uh, just talking about the trial and various issues we were having. And one issue that we were having at that time was we had taken a 30B6 deposition of Suzuki. And I'm sure you've never had this, where a defendant will put up a totally unprepared, (laughs) no-nothing 30B6 witness. Never happened. (laughs) (laughs) So so we filed a motion for sanctions. And I've got a letter I send out with my 30B6 notices telling them what their duties are and obligations to prepare the witness. So they put this guy up who doesn't know anything. So we filed a motion for sanctions and a motion to compel. And Lance said, what you need to do, see if they'll agree to this. See if they will agree, instead of another deposition, if they will agree to bring somebody live to trial for these two or three topics. So the topics that we wanted were, when did you decide to conduct the recall? When did you order the parts? And maybe one or one or two other things. So they called, they, they flew this guy in from Japan, who was their chief engineer, intimately involved in everything. And we called him to establish when they ordered the parts. And surprisingly, we had minutes of that meeting from the other defendant. Suzuki didn't have any of these minutes, but this guy was at the meeting. So this is another document we had trouble getting in. So we got him to identify the document and identify the meeting. And we got the document into evidence as an admission by a co-conspirator during the course of the conspiracy. And one of my highlights during the trial was Judge Detmering said, well, that sounds like a criminal case. Do you have a civil case that says 
it applies in civil cases. We said, yes, judge, this case right here, handed it to him. He went back in chambers and said, uh, uh, he said, Odd, I'm going to go back and read this, do a little research. So, you know, the three of us and, and uh, the associate who had that case, we're all just sitting in the, sitting in the courtroom, knees crossed, just chatting it up, having a big time. And you see the entire team of Suzuki lawyers, you know, the, we got the trial team, the appellate team, we got, we got 10 plus lawyers in there for Suzuki. They're all furiously over their computers trying to research something to keep this document out. And Judge mm -hmm. said, oh, I'm letting it in. <clears throat> so uh, they were totally unprepared for that. And it, had it been in a 30B6 deposition six months before trial, they'd have been prepared for it. Right. So one thing, the only way they could possibly get the cart out of the ditch was after the document was admitted, they offered a copy of the document and said, here, uh, take this red pen and scratch out everything you disagree with from Nissen's version of the meeting minutes. And he did that, but he still left. The best stuff we wanted was that, you know, we need 200,000 parts by July. Don't tell anybody, blah, 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 blah. So that was one of the great things that we had in terms of credibility. But, right. uh, you know, I'm one of these guys who, you know, I, I don't like to take depositions if I can avoid it because, I mean, how many times do you crucify somebody in a deposition and then they show up at court and they're prepared for it? Right, right. So if I'm going to tear them up, I want to tear them up in court for the first time so that they're totally unprepared for it. So that I think that was a huge plus for us. And I want to give credit to an adjunct professor of the team, Lance mm -hmm. Cooper, for giving yeah. us that. Well, and former guest on this show, he, Lance is a, a fantastic lawyer. Yep. Uh, I, I was just thinking about, you know, when he marks up that document like that, uh, you know, from a jury standpoint, all that does is really just draw attention to how important that document is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, defense lawyers, that's one thing we as plaintiff's lawyers can do is we can react on the fly. Right. And that's something that defense lawyers don't do quite as well as, as we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah, Cause I, I, I did read that in your, uh, I think it was in the closing about uh, the red line version. I wasn't sure what it was referring to, but now uh, that makes perfect sense. Now they, they bring this guy in. Uh, and I think, was this also the guy who had said that the R's didn't mean recall when somebody yes. else had already said that they did? Yeah. He, he, we showed him the kudo memo. And of course he said, no, R means GSX R. <laughs> right. Or, but of course, the Mr. Kudo, we played that video clip probably three or four times throughout the trial where he said R is code for recall. And he said, hi, hi. <laughs> right. <laughs> One Japanese right. word we understand. Hi. Right. Yes. Hi. <laughs> That's my karate days. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, guys, this has been just a great uh, discussion. Uh, really, uh, really good work on a, on just a tough case, a, a, an uphill battle. You know, one thing we didn't even talk about, John, and I guess you should talk about this the most, is, is that uh, Douglas County's, uh, you know, it, it, it's a tough county. Um, well, I've been there for 30 years, and I've right. watched it change considerably. It it it, uh, it used to be a county where you, where defense verdicts were very common. It's now a plaintiff's – it's it's good venue for plaintiffs. So if anybody's good. got a case in Douglas, please uh, call me. I'll be more than happy to help out in any way. But it's uh, – you know, it's – Atlanta has grown out there, and it's, uh, it's changed a lot since it was like a little farm community back when I first started before the mall was built and uh it was just 
you know, most of the, the people that grew up there have moved on farther out west. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> it's, you know, it's about 160,000 people in the county. And it's, as you may know, it's only about 25 minutes uh, into the city. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that, that's good to hear. Um, well, uh, again, just great work. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the uh, Johns versus Suzuki Motor Corp case and Suzuki Motor of America uh, case that resulted in a $12.5 million verdict. And we have been talking with uh, uh, Randy Edwards, Paul Piland of Cochran uh, and Edwards in Atlanta, Georgia. And you can look them up at CochranEdwardsLaw.com. Uh, again, that's C-O-C-H-R-A-N, uh, EdwardsLaw.com. And we've been talking to John Sherrod uh, of Sherrod and Bernard um, in Douglas, uh, Douglasville, uh, Georgia. And you can look up John at Sherrod, S-H-E-R-R-O-D and Bernard uh, dot com. So, uh, guys, uh, really appreciate the time. And and uh, and again, congratulations on a great result. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.